Hello everyone and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? This time unfortunately my good friend Baz uh, can't be with us but fear not dear listeners we've got our regular contributor Stunt Baz Guy Milner with us. How are you doing Guy? I'm doing very well. I'm pleased the complaints obviously died down. Um, we it, can yeah. welcome him back now about my appearance up here. It's, it's, been, it's been long enough since your last show that we, we can now get you back on safely without the, the torches and pitchforks from the listeners. Oh, that's good. That's good. I look forward to them, uh, them happening again. <laughs> and uh, not just you, of course. We have another special guest. It's Thomas from Free League. How are you doing, Thomas? Hello. Hi. I'm doing, doing well. Thank you. Excellent. So uh, the main reason we have you on is to talk about Blade Runner, which um, on Kickstarter at the minute, at the time of recording, is a crushing disappointment having only made £1 million UK. <laughs> Right, um, yeah. You must be hugely disappointed with that small yeah. amount of money. Generated. Devastated, devastated. Yeah. No, it's it's been spectacular. It's it's quite uh, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, yeah, fantastic. It seems to be a regular feature now of free league kickstarters that they always do well. Is that is that something you you always expect, or do you still have that nervousness whenever you release a game that maybe it won't do quite as well? As- yeah, you never know. It's it's always. I mean, yeah, we do have a good track record, but you never know. I mean, it's it's the it's the same feeling. It's always a, a leap of you know faith, or just a, it's a bit of a every time. Even though we've done like twenty six or something by now, Kickstarters, it's it's always nervous and it's always kind of nerve wracking, and it's you never know how things will actually you know land. But uh, yeah, it's uh, doing well and. Uh, uh, this is a bit of a passion project for me, so it's it's uh, every every Kickstarter that we do, you know, matter. But this one is a bit special. So I think probably the, the main things about Blair Runner is going to be that it's got it has got that strong uh, strong attachment from fans, and, and obviously saying you're a fan as well as we are. Does that add an extra bit of pressure? And how do you approach writing a game for such a, a well known and well loved franchise? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really a bit part of the. Part of the fun, but part of the challenge too. It's I think it has to start with, like you mentioned, there being a fan yourself. I don't think otherwise it just won't be any good if you don't have the love for the franchise. And then because that means you'll also have a lot of ideas and thoughts and yeah, on on how to turn this into a game. I mean, uh, basically, I've been thinking about this. I mean, obviously now for the last couple of years we've been working on it, but also before that, just as a fan, just how would this play out as an RPG and what would be cool to do? And and so it's you come into the project like this with a lot of ideas already, and that I think that that's important to have your own vision of how to to make it work as a game uh and i mean that's all we can do really i mean and and hopefully others will feel that we did a good job and and find it rewarding also but but uh, i think even though it's a pre-existing world it's important to come into it with a clear vision of how to turn this into a game and that's what we tried to do yeah there's been a lot of buzz about it i think lots of discussion about sort of I think particularly about what the scope of the game is. Like, obviously, mm. the original film is sort of LA, pretty much. And yeah. what once you've been around that city, I mean, people talking about can you go off world? Mm. Can you go the rest of the world? Is there anything you can share about that, Thomas? Yeah, I mean, to start out with, uh, I mean, obviously, the the film, the films, both of them are are set in LA, and and that's also the where we uh, that's the core setting for our game as well. Because we feel there is, it's a lot to explore there. Even though it's just one city, there is so much to unpack and so much to explore and 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 experience. Even if you keep that as your main 
main setting. Then, uh, of course, obviously beyond that, we do have thoughts and ideas and plans, but for you know other things that we possibly could do down the line. But I think for the core game and what we're doing right now, uh, Los Angeles is the core setting, and it's going to be uh, plenty to explore and discover there. You're keeping the door open for supplements there in the future. Possibly, yeah. I mean, we're not closing any doors for sure. Yeah, it's good to hear. Yeah. So one of the things that you ask about, or I ask about any particular game, is what's your core activity? So are people going to be playing Harrison Ford? Will they be able <laughs> to play Replicants? You know, what's the, well, yeah. what do you do in the game as you, as you see it? Yeah, I mean, that's also been a big uh, question when designing this game on how, what's the scope, what do you do? I mean, I think that's a key question for designing any uh, role-playing game, to my mind, is uh, I think any good RPG needs to answer that question. It needs to be fairly clear, what do you do? I mean, what kind of role do you fill as a player in this universe? And we decided to for the core game to keep a fairly narrow scope, I guess you could say, and that that is that you will be playing in the core game uh, as Blade Runners. But and to, to, because that that just feels like the core of the franchise. I mean, both films and also the the extended universe stuff, the comics, and and, uh, and they're focused on Blade Runners, and and just doing that that's plenty in itself to explore, and it also gives us a framework to where gameplay is focused on investigations. So it it also kind of informs gameplay and to some extent game mechanics uh, what you are and, and focusing on being a Blade Runner running investigations investigating what we call case files that's really the, the core of the game and that, that we wanted to kind of keep that framework uh, so that's why we have focused on that but that doesn't mean everyone is Harrison Ford or everyone is just you know the same character because Blade Runners can come in in a wide variety of shapes and forms and sizes. And since the game is set in 2037, which is a year after Replicants were reintroduced, and uh, and Blade and Replicants are also working as Blade Runners themselves, that means you can also play a human Blade Runner or a Replicant Blade Runner. So you have quite a way you can play human, you can play Replicant, and whichever you choose, there's also a, a, a wide range of, of types of characters you can play. So I think we feel there is a lot to just to, to explore and play, even if you stay in the confines of playing a Blade Runner. But then again, like in the previous question, we're not closing any doors for the future to possibly open the doors to play other character types. That that might be a thing we might do down the line, but it's not part of the base game right now because we just feel a narrow, clear focus is is kind of the best way to approach this to start out. So that's good. I mean, I think it's quite a high concept, like um, the original film and the book, certainly. It's sort of nature of humanity, nature of memory, yeah. all, all that kind of, you know, nature of technology and the impact on it. I don't, this might be a, this might be asking a lot, but is is there any way, that, does that come through in the game? Do you How do you translate that into like a, a pool of dice or whatever is is there yeah. anything that touches on yeah that's a that's a, been a challenge a fun challenge but definitely a challenge because there is such a i mean uh, blade runner is is such an and you know it, it touches on so many themes and it's very you know existential in, in the way it approaches things and the questions 
it asks. Uh, it's it's not an easy thing necessarily to translate into an RPG, and it, it's not going to be you know run after you know kill the monster and steal the gold. I mean, it, it's so much to do justice to the franchise. We really have to go dig a lot deeper than that, and it has to have that sense of of of, of existential questions and. I think that's also part of why we wanted to keep it uh, fairly narrowly focused on playing Blade Runners because then you can kind of pose these questions a bit more clearly. If you just say, here's the world, play any character, whatever you like, then I think the risk is you would kind of lose focus on these existential questions that I think if you lose those, it's not really Blade Runner. It it, it becomes something else, something more generic. And we really wanted to keep the feeling of of you know the films and and this the the feeling you get by by watching them so that's uh, yeah i think a lot of this will come through through the case files themselves mm-hmm. these are the scenarios that we that we uh, write for for the game because they will present a case to investigate but it will really be uh, including a lot of these questions uh, uh, solving a case in blade runner would never just be find who did it and catch them and bring them, you know, arrest them, whatever, and you're done. It's always going to be much more complicated than that. And I think that's how we approach that. It's uh, probably going to be easier when when you can actually see the game and the case files and see how that's kind of put together. I think it will become a bit more clear. But yeah, addressing these questions is the main challenge of creating this game for sure. So it sounds like there's quite a bit of the system built into the scenario there, almost. Is yeah, that the sort of thing yeah. you're saying. And yeah. are you uh, looking to provide advice on how people would write their own case files then and build one up? Like I yeah. know, some of the things like Vason, for example, you've got how to put a mystery together and that kind of thing. Is that that similar sort of thing that you're thinking of? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean that's what we want to do uh, to give solid tools because obviously we will be publishing uh, uh, official case files with, you know, everything, uh, handouts and, and, uh, and events and NPCs and all of that. But also we obviously realize the need because this game will be based on having uh, case files to investigate. So we the game will include a variety of tools for game masters to create these case files for their group because I think it's clear that even though we'll have a range of case files to, to to publish, it might not be enough for all the groups. So yeah, we definitely need to give support to game masters to create their own. I mean, I think in that sense, Blade Runner differs a bit from some of our other games that some of them are more improvisational and more procedural. You can run them uh, almost with no preparation. They're kind of just to kind of see where the story takes you. Uh, that's cool in itself, but it's not how Blade Runner works the way we set it up because Blade Runner is, is focused on investigating a case. So that means you need a case to investigate. So it, it needs some preparation. So it differs a bit in that sense. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, a, another investigative game from you. I know that, well, actually, on this podcast, we've talked about investigative games and talked a lot about Vason and how mm. how well Vason's structure of mysteries um, supports really good investigative games. Th- there's a thing, there's a, there's a phrase in the Kickstarter thing about how Blade Runner will push boundaries of investigative gameplay, which which excites me a bit. Can you can you shed any more detail into that about how yeah. I assume the push is a like Year Zero engine reference as well? Ah, uh, maybe yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, definitely. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, 
It's uh, both Vason and Tales from the Loop are both also investigative. They're based on on solving mysteries. Uh, and yes, uh, Blade Runner is certainly informed by those games. I think and taken it up a notch. I'd say it's not that you know it, it, they're not that the others. It it just we add some elements to it uh, that will. Uh, it's hard to go into details without spoiling too much, but I think there there will be a number of things that we're doing in addition to the kind of structure that you will have seen in, in Vazen is that uh, you'll have, uh, I mean, handouts are, are super important. I think the first case file that Electric Dreams, that will be part of the starter set. I think it has 28 handouts or something like that. So it's, it's and though it's on the kind of a different level. So we, what we want to create is this feeling of where act where you get to the point as a player where because in in many games if you get or or if you get a handout you feel that you have like three or four you know that what's on these is going to be super important and the answer is going to be somewhere in there. You need to kind of you know it, it's it's a very strong signal that this is something uh, that you should uh, pay attention to. In, in Blade Runner, you might have 20 handouts, 25. So you'll fill the table with a kind of a body of evidence and clues. You want to get the sense of, you know, in all of these, you know, the crime films, we have like a wall of, of, of photos and maps yeah. and lines in between them. That sense on the gaming table that you have so, you have more evidence than it's easy to process. So you'll actually have to kind of, it's not going to be obvious uh, what is important and what is not. So there's just going to be so much of this stuff that it's going to be a challenge to kind of see what is, what is actually, you know, a, and, and connect the dots. It's not going to be obvious. It's going to be a bit of a challenge to, to actually, you know, do that and, and arrive at the, at the, at the, at the resolution or the answer. So it's uh it's it definitely builds on on what's done in Vase and then Tales from the Loop, but it's it adds a few levels on top of it. I'd say it's one of my my favourite bittersweet moments in games when I'm at a gym. If, if the pack of whatever I've got's got numbered handouts, and yeah, you know, like number one, two, and four, the players go, "Hang on, we've missed something. We need to go back and find play handout three because we haven't got that one." Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like that. Then, of course, there is always in investigative games. There's always the risk that you get stuck, which is not fun. So we have some ways to get around that issue as well. And I think it's actually kind of an interesting thing that uh, it's an in, the core structure of the game is an investigation. But at the end of the day, it's actually not the investigation or the answer. It's actually not the essence of the, of the case or the game. It's actually what you do when you realize the truth and then what you choose to do. And that is kind of the core of the game. So that means it's, um, you can get there in different ways. So, so, of course, solving the case quickly will gain, grant you some bonuses and, and some advantages. But even if, even if you do, it's not going to be, ah, great, we solved the case, we cracked it, let's go home and celebrate. That's not really ever going to be the case. Because probably once you blow the case open, you realize there is a great, you know, some kind of a dilemma or a difficult, you know, choice to be made. And that is usually kind of the core of, of, of the case file and what you will be doing. So um, it's it's a lot more, I'd say, complex uh, than 
some even some of our other games i think i mean they can have depth also but here it's it's kind of built into the system in a way that it might not be so it's a bit of a challenge to design this game and also i think quite a challenging game to run but also definitely a lot of fun excellent i hear there's there's a few tweaks to the kind of core system as well aren't there i've heard rumors of like dice other than d6s being used mm, yeah um, yeah <laughs> that's true yeah we decided i mean the user engine has been is a d6 dice pool uh, based system that we've been developing for a number of years now uh, it's been doing really well. I think it's it's it you know it's simple at its core, but it has enough depth to make it interesting. So it's it's been and it's easy to adapt to different systems, different settings, and different games. So it's been doing well. But um, we started to experiment a bit more in the last couple of years. We did a, a, a first actually with Forbidden Lands where we used. Polydice D8s, D10s, and D12s for uh, magical artifacts to kind of reinforce the feel that these artifacts are not regular items. They're, you know, special magical. So we used, you know, higher, bigger dice to, to kind of symbolize that. Then we took that idea further when we did Twilight 2000, because for a number of reasons, we needed to keep the number of dice on the table down a bit because it just these because in in twilight 2000 we added something we call ammo dice which uh meant another pool of d6s and and if we had kept the original year zero engine dice pools we you would have ended up with dice pools of i don't know 20 dice or something and it just got too much so we said we have to do something a bit different so we figured out a way to use these poly dice where you roll two dice instead of you know up to 10 to make a, a roll. And when we started working on Blade Runner, we, it, it, we felt that this game is really focused on investigations. And then you have these character development and these existential issues. And there's a lot going on. And we felt that rolling like 10 dice on the table would kind of distract from the, the other stuff because there's so much else to keep in mind. So we've, for this game, we felt that the mechanics needed to be fairly uh, in the background and, and not to take up too much space on the table and not too much space in the minds of players. So we felt we needed a, a rules-like system that was a bit more unobtrusive, maybe. Uh, and that we felt that using just two dice instead of a dice pool of up to ten worked quite well. So we tested it out and we liked it and we went with it. So yeah, so instead of having dice pools, you'll just be rolling two dice and they can vary from instead of, you know, the, the level of your, your, your skill or your attribute will be measured by the type of die you roll instead of the number of dice you roll. So that's, that's the kind of, that's how it works. It's really, and the math behind it is not that different. It's, differs a little bit but it's fairly close to to the classical year zero so it's not that much but it's a difference in kind of game feel what you you know how much space it takes on the table so it's um yeah that's the way we uh designed it well, there's a question i wanted to ask actually in, in terms of year zero engine it's something i've discussed with people many times and some people find it a bit of a struggle because it's actually difficult to get successes or multiple successes yeah they're probably more used to games where you roll lots of dice. So my, my advice generally is to roll dice less often mm. and make it more about, you know, enjoy the session. Yeah. Only roll when it's really important. And then 
you know, if you have to push or whatever and get conditions that it, it, it's more meaningful. Is that something you would echo or am I just leading people down the wrong path? No, that's true. I mean, that's, that's definitely uh, the way we approached it. And yeah, I mean, it's, um, if you roll, it's really much, it goes back to kind of what kind of role-playing tradition you are from, what kind of preferences you have. But yeah, almost all of the Year Zero games are designed to roll dice when it really matters and not not when, if nothing really major is at stake, then you basically don't need to roll for it. And that, that kind of carries through into this game as well. Yeah, definitely. So I think you've been, uh, you've been uh, doing it right. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So I'm just I'm just firing up the Kickstarter page at the moment just to see where you're up to in terms of um, obviously with any Kickstarter it's all about stretch goals um, in terms of that. Do you want to talk through what what plans you've got for those? Sort of where where are we as of now and and, and what else is hopefully coming along? Oh yeah, I mean so far we have two more to go. I think another bonus uh, character archetype, the skimmer, and then. Uh, handout envelope basically all of these handouts that i that uh, that we discussed uh, we uh, we need uh, something to put them in and this is really inspired i mean I, I think perhaps if you remember the old james bond victory games uh, rpg yeah. from, from the 80s yeah i used to play that a lot and i love that and it had that these cool handouts in the top secret marked envelopes it's really this is uh this is not much to that at least for me I think that's, I really, you know, really love that. And, and I'd like to do something similar. Beyond that, if we, if we reach that one, uh, we have a few more ideas. We're actually kind of uh, now running out of, um, I mean, we had some ideas for stretch goals before starting the Kickstarter, obviously, because you don't want a situation where you make up everything uh, on the fly, because that would probably mean you, you do something that takes a lot longer than, you thought to actually do and complete. So we need to think these things through before we start a Kickstarter. So we did that. So basically most of the ones that we have up now had, were at least, you know, fairly well planned out ahead of time. They were still, uh, you know, we, we didn't know we could, you know, print them, do them without reaching these levels, but at least we had an idea of what we wanted to do. Now, uh, if we reach all of these uh, up to 24, I think the ones we have, you know, ideas for beyond that, uh, they're a bit more, uh, a bit more, you know, done on the fly. So it's always, it's going to get interesting and see what we can come up with. Uh, that will be meaningful and worthwhile that we can give to backers without uh, doing anything that will, you know, risk delaying, because that's always the risk. If we promise adding a lot of stuff, uh, and that will take a long time to actually do, and then we'll end up delaying the whole thing, and, and no one's going to be happy about that. So it's always this balance between doing cool stuff that is meaningful, adds you know meaning and value to backers, but does not compromise the entire project, because that's not worth it. So yeah, that's the balance. But we do have some more ideas, and uh, yeah, if we reach number 24, we'll probably have something more to... To show, yeah, that's good. You could commission Van Gallis to do some, like, <laughs> yeah. that would be, uh, yeah, 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 well, yeah. Wouldn't it? <laughs> so. that'd be great. Yeah, uh, one of the things I tend to like about your stretch goals, uh, generally, is that you add, tend to add more gaming content, it's stuff for the game, if you know what I mean. Some Kickstarters seem to go big into, um, I don't know, uh, log odd hats or tote bags or like just random ephemera, whereas. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I think a good thing the free league tend to do is like give you more stuff to do with the game that you're producing, which seems like a the natural thing to do, but perhaps yeah. not as widely used in the game industry. Maybe, um, yeah. There wasn't much of a question. I started to make a statement while we were talking yeah. about <laughs> to encourage you to do more good game stuff. Really, that's what that's about. Yeah, it's good. I'm looking. I'm just looking at. I'm. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. You've got one for Animoid Row in Chinatown. That's uh, that's well up for that. Some uh, custom animals being built. That'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's so much. To, I mean, look, that's kind of what I was uh, referencing earlier. That there is uh, a lot going on i mean there's and of course the 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 two films are the main obviously the main body of of you know inspiration and world building that we are looking at but but uh, also that there's been uh, i mean there are the recent uh, comics uh, and and uh, there's an anime and there's an, uh, a computer game that came out in the 90s and there's actually quite a bit of world building beyond the films that we have also taken a deep dive into to really kind of flesh out and explore this world and, and uh, yeah so if um, there's quite a bit of easter eggs and, and fun things to to um, find in the game if you really you know uh, if you do that kind of a deep dive in, into Blade Runner there's uh, there's a lot there to find. I guess having the, the sort the main source material being two films is Almost makes it a li- it's almost a feature in terms of making it a bit more accessible to the like five or six people on the planet who haven't seen Blade Runner. Like if they're yeah. in a game, it's not like it's it's not like you've got to like I don't know for the One Ring you obviously don't have to, but it's not like oh you just read the Silmarillion and uh, this book of <laughs> this trilogy of books and read all of Tolkien's published work and everything that's going behind it. You can just like watch the first film, you'll know what it's about, and then kind of charge into it. Yeah, given that it's um a license how easy is that to work with uh, a partner and i guess i probably know the answer to this one but i'll ask anyway for, for this unlike uh, aliens for example is there any possibility that these games will have the free league workshop element where fans can uh, produce their own scenarios and, and publish them for sale is that sort of something that can happen or is the license around that make it difficult uh it's it's a bit tricky i don't cannot say for sure one way or the other just yet but it, it is definitely i mean for for and and that's the same for any licensed product that i mean the way licenses work is basically that the licensor uh needs to uh, check and approve everything that is published i mean that's that's why i mean that is how licensing works and and uh, Having a community content program makes that a bit tricky because it it, it obviously means they are these uh, uh, freely workshop publications are official or semi-official, so it, it makes it a bit more difficult to do a thing like that. So I really I can't say at this point, uh, but I mean I love that. I mean the the freely workshop has been great uh, for for the titles that are in it, uh, and so much fantastic content has been you know. I think I think you've got a couple of things on there, Gaz, haven't you? Just so to, that's, that's very nice. To, I feel I've got to product place those. <laughs> if people want to look at Midnight Hunt or uh, Unbearable for Vason, very cool. Puppy Love for Tales from the Loop, then they should head over to Drive Through right now. Absolutely, yeah. And both me and Freely profit out of that arrangement, so it's, it's good for both of us. <laughs> cool. So um, I guess one of the things with investigative scenarios, and perhaps there might be something built in first that you can tell us, is um, some people feel they get overwhelmed or just want the character to do the investigation or work things out when they can't. And it sounds like there's definitely an element of player input in the way that you've designed the game. Other ways to kind of like shortcut bits, you've mentioned getting stuck, but if players 
or some players are really struggling to gather things, is there a way for you to sort of like facilitate them looking clever in the game or their character providing some hints for them if, if the players really struggle to grasp what's going on? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you're right. There is definitely a bit of player skill or competence, I guess, in this game. But, yeah, of course, there is. there are mechanical ways in the game system that will allow... Uh, player characters to be good at something, uh, even though the player, you know, doesn't connect the dots. Definitely, there are there are a number of rules mechanics that do provide for this. Uh, but then there's also another level of that, and this that we have. It's not just a matter of solving the case to get to the end. There's also a clock ticking down, typically in case files. The way we have. Uh, the way they're constructed, there are some. We have something called a countdown, and uh, and that's I think familiar to you if you've seen. There, there's something similar in in Vazen, uh, Mysteries as well, and that means that mm-hmm. uh, the the case file or the scenario will not just proceed along, you know, with the players. It will also whatever they do. There's also going to be something happening uh, that will kind of push the scenario forward and push the narrative forward no matter what they do and that can so basically that can be the difference between having uh, player characters who are kind of ahead of the 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 events that will be unfolding and maybe get there before something happens or they will be kind of on the defensive and c- try to catch up and and arrive just after something happens. And both of those will be fun stories. None of them are necessarily, you know, the right way or none of them is a fail or none of them is like the success. They're just, you will get a cool story no matter what. It's just going to be a bit different. If you if you kind of succeed at the investigation, you will might, you know, get there early or you'll kind of find your way there uh, after the fact and and they will be different but they will both be fulfilling an interesting story so that's the the scenario and and how it turns out and and kind of the the fun you'll be having will not just depend on if you solve the case or not there's a there is more going on yeah i think to check out on some of my advice in the past as well uh, with you i know in Vason the countdown works really well to stop yeah that sort of turtling of we'll wait around and see if we can find out more stuff. We'll go to these three places first. Um, and I know my advice um, on the blog has been, you know, trigger that first countdown as soon as you can. Like what, straight after they arrive in the village, yeah. the barn burns down kind of thing. Just start the clock ticking immediately and do it. Is, is that something you'd advise for Blade Runner as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely the way we built it. I think, uh, I mean, um, Bazin that I didn't write, and uh, that was Nils Hinze, uh, a freelancer that we worked with a lot. He did great work on on, on how, you know, building uh, mysteries in Bazin. And, and we're doing something similar with Blade Runner, even though it's a bit more layers or a bit more complex. But really, that kind of philosophy is very much the same, that... Um, it's not just, you know, the world will not stand still waiting for you to find the clues. If you don't find them in time, something will happen that will just push things along, probably into some kind of dramatic situation and, you know, whether you're there or not. And that, I think, works really well because it means it will the, the action of the game will not bog down or stall because the players 
are slow or go to the wrong location. It's just going to be different, but things will happen no matter what they do. And I think that's the way to approach mystery solving in, in role playing, because otherwise you run that risk of, of everything just slowing down. If, if the players feel either they go the wrong way or that they just get bogged down in detail too much. And, and both of those things can mean that it just stops and that's something we really want to avoid. And I think the way to do it is to have these, you know, a countdown or something like that that will kind of push the action along. Uh, and if the players get, you know, sidetracked or, or bogged down in detail, they'll miss the big picture and things will happen. Be, and, and they need to move forward uh, because things will be happening beyond their control. Um, I noticed with Blade Runner, you've gone for, well, as you did with One Ring, there's a starter set attached to it as well. There was a start set for um, Tales from the Loop as well. Yeah. Are we are we approaching the time? Do you think where it's sort of industry standard? If you've got a big game coming out, a starter set is becoming expected as, as part of the um, part of the, the the deal. Like having your initial adventure. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it seems a bit like it, it's becoming quite commonplace. I think I can't speak for anyone else, but for us, it's. It's been a good way to kind of collect, because uh, I know for, for Alien, for example, we had the core book and then we had a bunch of stuff that we released alongside it. We had like a, a separate scenario, Chariot of the Gods, and then we had like the map and we had the, the card deck and we had the dice. And, and it just makes sense to kind of, why not just put that together into a box and that will be everything you need and add in a condensed rule book as well. And then that'll, that will be everything you need to play the game to get started. So we feel it's, it's not a starter set in the sense that it's really slimmed down. It's, it's, it, 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 it's quite comprehensive. I mean, that's the way we approach starter sets now. We actually even discuss whether we should even call them starter sets because they're quite comprehensive and and for the Blade Runner starter set it's the the scenario Electric Dreams that's that's not just like it it's not a small taster or anything like that it's actually a fully fledged full comprehensive scenario with lots of handouts so it's it's more of a you know major you know box scenario that also includes like handouts and dice and a rule set so it's it's more than than your kind of what you might think. So starter set might not even be the best term for it any longer. It's uh, more of a boxed gaming experience, really. I think from a marketing point, it, it makes sense, right? If people, if you have a starter set, people go, "Where do I start?" Exactly. You've at least got that element. So that make that's why we still keep that term, but but that it's it's a good place to start. It's a great place to start because it has everything you need. But it doesn't mean it's something small or flimsy or something you'll play for two hours and then you're done. It's not that. It's much more comprehensive. But yeah, it's, it's the best place to start. Yeah, this, I suppose there's quite a variety. And like you said, it's quite a variety even in the, the different ones Free League have done. Like the One Ring is, is, is five, I suppose, more introductory scenarios, aren't they? But, mm. but you've also got all the source book for the Shire. And so it's like a, a yeah. little region source book as well. And if you look at, I think I'm thinking... Think loud. We look at like the ones that Chaosium have done, and the ones that Cubicle Seven have done. They're all quite varied in how they've approached mm. the two. I guess there are two D and D ones now, aren't they? Starter yeah. and Essentials, and they take quite a different approach to what's in them and 
and how they right. work. It's probably it's it's quite a lot of diversity in what you can put in the box set to uh, to to make it an introductory game or or not, as you say. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what we've been seeing in the industry as a whole. That that yeah, I mean, starter sets are becoming fairly fairly common, but they're also quite varied in what actually how comprehensive they are and what they include. So there's a there's quite a bit of. Uh, uh, variety there that I think is interesting what you can do with, with a starter set it doesn't, I mean maybe a few years ago a starter set meant something very small very very cheap and very kind of flimsy but I think it doesn't mean that anymore it can mean you know a lot of different things Yeah I think we used to have quick starts was the thing wasn't it, as yeah. opposed to a starter set feels like mm. it's more of a grown up version almost or yeah. yeah Is there anything else you want to tell us about the Blade Runner uh, starter set main game or any other feature you think that we haven't covered so far that will get people interested if they're not already? I'm just uh, super excited to see, you know, to get this in, into the hands of, of, of the backers. That That is, I mean, and hopefully we can do that in just a couple of weeks after the Kickstarter ends. And yeah, and after that, I think we'll have, you know, it, it's going to be, you know, everything that I've been rambling about uh, now is going to be probably a lot more clear to everyone what we actually mean by all of this stuff. So yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Excellent. Uh, it'll give people a chance to try it out and probably give feedback. Oh, yeah. That's the idea. I mean, uh, hopefully we've done, you know, a good job, but but definitely it nothing can replace having, you know, thousands of, of backers going through everything and, and giving feedback. And there will definitely be a period of time before anything goes to print where we can, you know, uh, review and listen to, to backers and, uh, and uh, definitely consider every feedback that we'll get. So that's going to be a big thing. Uh, you know, the minute we share this with everyone, uh, that's what we'll be doing. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for coming on again and seeing us. And we, we can't wait to see the product land in our hands. Thank you. So that was Thomas or Tomas. I think I pronounced it several different ways. I always get worried when I have one of the <laughs> Swedish designers on. Some of them will be right. It'll be fine. I'm sure. I know, and they're always very polite and just sort of smile sadly and look a bit disappointed in me and let me carry on. So thank you. It's great to have you on. I'm, I'm really curious about this new game, actually, Guy, because it's something that people have always, they're, they're kind of in two camps about. Some people go, oh, Blair Runner was well there, so I'd love to play like that kind of game. And other people go, what would you do? So I think we might have answered some questions like that. But, I mean, have you played any Blair Runner stuff before I tried to run it as a game? Yeah, well, it's it's one of my first ever role-playing experiences was playing... Um, well, Cyberpunk 2020 it was as then, in the Blade right. Runner universe. And it was, I think it was, I mean, it was a classic 90s game. So my character hadn't played for like the previous five sessions. So it was not as powerful at all as the, the other people in the group who, <laughs> who had all the best gear. It was great. And yeah, it was, it, but it was just Cyberpunk. But it was, yeah, it's in LA. You're hunting replicants. That's it. it and it, the actual game system, I mean, this is, this is obviously, this was when I was like 14 or something. So I, I, I was not in a position to make a very good judgment of it. But it felt like it just, it just fitted in really well and everything sort of suited with it. It's, it's, I think a lot of cyberpunk games, because the film's so like ubiquitous among ner- nerd culture, a lot of them are set in basically Blade Runner Los Angeles, aren't they? Because that's right, the visual yeah, that yeah. you remember. Like a lot more people mm. have seen that film than have read like Neuromancer or whatever other cyberpunk source material there is. You know, I have it in my head when, you know, when, when I go to a noodle bar in a cyberpunk game, it's probably the one that Deckard goes to, you know. 
I was just going to say Neil, but I think you're exactly right. When people think of Neo Tokyo and stuff like that, they're actually thinking of LA and Blair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the classic kind of kind of kind of setup, isn't it? Um, but yeah, it's good, and I think uh, it, interesting to th- to because basically it sounds like a police procedural investigative yeah, game. Does. Um, mm. And as we sort of said in the interview, I think in Tales from the Loop and Vason, they've done really interesting stuff about making investigative games that. It's almost that thing you don't need to step out of character to investigate because there's lots of safety nets. There's lots of stuff that you find out all the time and the structure's like explicitly flexible enough to allow you to make choices and not be, oh, we'd better go back to the library and see if there's something we missed. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've had it even in like a Warhammer game. I was going to say recently, but it's probably a year ago now, but like there's a bunch of factions in this city that are made and the kind of players went around everyone and then once they'd done they literally covered all the bases because one of the guys was like we need to talk to everybody he like, then wanted to go back to the start and start asking him again now we got the information from the other ones it's like this, is, this will be a never ending loop where you just constantly go around the six factions of the city asking them new questions <laughs> but like the investigation is going nowhere like nothing's happening so that yeah I do like investing in other games that countdown mechanic of if you just keep doing that then other stuff happens and you're not stopping it and you need to stop it happening kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of external pressure needs to be there. Yeah, and the other stuff gives pressure, but it also sort of helps move the plot along as well because what's going on yeah. becomes more obvious when whoever gets kidnapped right. or whatever. It, it, it gives you a sort of... It narrows the options of focuses things down, doesn't definitely, it? Definitely, definitely. And there's, there's definitely that thing, isn't there, sometimes when you're running investigative games where... I don't, yeah, there's, there's a kind of player, I think, sometimes, that you sometimes find at conventions that, yeah, wants to know the full picture all the time, won't use no guesswork, it's all got me. So that's why you get that, we've got to go back to this person, we've got to go back to this person. I've done those things where, like, they, they search the bedroom of the person that's gone missing, and like we are talking about before, you, they get the handout of the person's diary, and they're still looking for it, and you're like, no, that, that was the clue. Like, can't you that's tell? Like, I've printed it out and laminated it. Like, I've, it's really clear that this is important. There isn't anything else. I haven't got anything else, like, in my folder. Like, you need to use that and work out where to go. It's, um, and, and the same kind of thing where players will sometimes construct barriers and construct what-ifs. Mm. So everything's pointing towards, you know, go to the warehouse to, to, to intercept the transition. But, it's, oh, but, but what if they know we've found out and have moved it somewhere else? It's like, yeah. like <laughs> it's like trying to argue with flat earthers and stuff like this. Go, yeah, but what if this? And like, you, just got, you can't just keep asking the question every time. That's we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, it's a struggle. I think a worry some people have about the sort of countdowns and things like that is that uh, what they're doing doesn't matter. So I think mm-hmm. what was discussed in the interview was that it sounded good that there are going to be certain beats or whatever in the story that you're going to get to, but it's just do you get there? before the warehouse burns down or do you get there while it's burning and people are running around screaming and stuff. So that, I think that's a nice touch that you can, you've got to have some level of control to make sure that things move forward, but, but with enough then flexibility that the players feel like they've, they've had some control, they've had some say in what's going on, yeah. where they've given themselves an advantage or that they've let themselves down in some way and they need to you know, maybe try and get ahead of the game in the next scene or something like that. Yeah, and I suppose you solve one of the problems in Blade Runner by the fact that you are Blade Runners. So the... The whole, oh, we should just tell the police about this, or we should just like get reinforcements and wait. Like you are the reinforcements, you're the people yeah. doing this. You've got to kind of uh, kind of get sorted, which is another thing that some that can be sometimes frustrating when there's that sort of. Oh, you better tell someone about this. It's like, well, you can, but that's going to be a useless role playing scene that's going to lead nowhere. <laughs> you can tell someone, and then your boss will ring you and say, "Why aren't you getting on with this thing? People keep telling us about it." Yeah. 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 
I mean, I am interested to see this. Um, it was a good question. You, you asked about you know existentialism and the morality elements and stuff like that that comes in. So that will be a curious one because I think that that can be hit and miss with some players as opposed to others. Again, not no value judgment. Just some people are more interested in it than others. So it be you will be curious to see how that lands and if it builds. Because quite recently we tried a couple of games of Dogs in the Vineyard, for example, which yeah. which works on the players come up with their judgments and then you. Uh, if you play it long enough, you kind of reincorporate that and then make it, oh, well, now it's your brother into that thing and you, and you said that was an executable offence. So do you know, do you have to execute your brother? Yeah, oh. yeah. You know, and there's some of that moral dilemma. I don't think it'll be quite as heavy as that maybe, but we'll be curious to see what kind of thing they've come up with to make make it a moral dilemma. And if, if you get like bloodthirsty and murder hub or Blade Runners, like how you deal with that maybe. I mean, there's, there's no counter for players. But. <laughs> I d- yeah, I mean, those. I, I was thinking actually a, a while after that question that actually those. So those themes that about sort of nature of humanity, what really is science? You know how, you know the memories of people that have only been around for short space of time. Tales from the Loop actually addresses a lot of those. It, it poses a lot of those questions actually, and a lot of its mysteries, doesn't it? There's a lot of, you know, is this robot? That's true. Is this robot real or not? There's a lot of. Um, yeah, you know, actually, this, right. this, yeah. yeah, your mum was really ill and now she's come back, um, but she's actually a robot. All that kind of, all those kind of things that mm. that that work from a very different point of view because playing children there, right? So it's it it gives you that sort of naivety yeah. to to try stuff out and not be sure about it. it. It's a different approach, I guess, when you're the ones with the guns, um, like making those judgments and then shooting people. <laughs> might support a different style of play than. Mm. than uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, a worry some people have as well is uh, kind of the Matt Mercer effect in a way. You know, some people get worried about D&D, go, oh, I'm not as good a DM as Matt Mercer. Well, you know, his games are all right, but he's, <laughs> he's just a very good voice actor and he's got some good voice actor friends, you know. it's like I'm not as good a DM as, as Gaz from the Smart Party. That's, that's what they exactly, That's what he says privately. That's what Matt's saying, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> he's there having worries at night about it. <laughs> there is an element... Once you've had, uh, you've got source material, which is a film, and you've got a good actor, and you have uh, dramatic moments like with Rutger Hauer and Harrison Ford yeah. at the end of the movie, stuff like, how are you going to be able to replicate that? And you probably can't because you're not, you know, a great screenwriter and don't have yeah. excellent actors and it's you probably, have multiple takes for the direction. Isn't it? Know. It's even worse because didn't Rutger Hauer like improvise that that speech yeah, as well? Right. <laughs> he did just make it up like he was a player at the table at a game. Yeah. Yeah, and he and he's dead now, so he can't. <laughs> you're not going to get any more. You can't ring him up for help. Yeah. So yeah, I, th- I mean, I th- suppose the answer is chill out about it. But have, have you got any other thoughts about how you? I suppose get um, Blade Runner authenticity into the game. Or is it just a matter of not worrying about not trying to be authentic? Maybe that's the solution. I think, I think there's two lines to it. I think there's like, is my game good enough to be the film? And I think you also have like it's a like that like no mistake. It's a massively influential film, isn't it? It wasn't it wasn't a hit of the cinema um, particularly, but then like video rentals and all of that home viewing, it, it's now recognised as a masterpiece. Or well, at least one of the cuts of it is a masterpiece. And that's like you're not going to create a, a masterpiece plot, are you? At a table with four of your mates, hunting down replicants, not every dice. time. Oh, not every time, no. And I think just chill out about it because th- you're not comparing the same thing. Like a game, a game can be quite can be quite cliched, can be quite obvious, can be quite almost cheesy, and it'd be really effective because cliche doesn't matter in gaming at all. It, right. If you just touch on 
a moment of like somebody considering what it means to be human and sees the recognition in the replicant's eyes before you blow its brains out and then look at your the other guy in the party who's a replicant and recognize it. You know, even a tiny little thing like that is it's a big deal at the gaming table, whereas it wouldn't be necessarily in a film. So you're not competing against the film. I think I think that's my first thing is just yeah, chill out about it. It's not gonna be the same as, as that experience. Just like when you play the one ring, it's not gonna be the same as as Tolkien. You're not gonna spend like five hundred pages just like walking across doing the two towers thing, are you? You're gonna actually enca- have some encounters on that on that journey. Um, so. Usually, thankfully, a lot less poetry, which I'm pleased about. Yeah, yeah less singing generally. <laughs> but, I, but I think the flip side of that is the worry about sort of, you know, authenticity nerds. And I don't. I feel like we've talked a lot about difficult players, but there is a thing when you when you run at a con, you get someone who is really into Blade Runner and has read all the books and, and will have like. Um, oh, actually, the uh, the kind of noodles that you would buy in that store would be um, these kind of, and, and I mean, again, I'd more forcefully, I'd say, just don't worry about that. It doesn't matter. This is your Los Angeles. This is your game. You know, Harrison Ford isn't running about in the background doing the actual plot of the film. Like it, it, that, that's happened. It's a bit. I guess it, it's a bit like the One Ring, actually, isn't it? And it's set between the two mm. films, so they've set it in a time yeah. where there isn't there isn't much about it. But yeah, that authenticity thing is is. It is something I think to be aware of, particularly if you're a convention GM of it, that there may be someone who knows more about the canon than you, and you might need to be clear that this is this is the world that you and the players make, and not not yeah. for them to police or say what it is. Yeah, I can't. What was the game? Because it months ago, twelve forty-two or something like that. I can't remember the year of the game, which will yeah. have RuneQuest fans up in arms because we don't know the year. But there's <laughs> one of them, and, and I think it was. Uh, Rich, who was running it at a convention, and started off by saying, "Like, so who knows about the Cathar Rebellion and blah blah blah?" And one guy's, "Oh yeah, I know loads about it." He's like, "Good shop. Like, I don't want to do anything from you again," which was a bit of a harsh way of doing it. But yeah, he, he toned it down after. And basically, what he was saying, like, is, you know, if you know stuff about it, add enough detail to make things cool or come up with interesting things. Or when you're sat at the bar going, oh, "I'm sucking down my udon noodles because those are the correct ones for the particular noodle bar, or whatever." But like, don't be interrupting people or telling them wrong yeah. or things like that. You should, you know, use that knowledge to kind of enhance the game rather than browbeat others because they don't know as much as you. Yeah, and it, it fits into general sort of narrative approach to gaming, isn't it? That you should, you know, the, the, the game is made at the table. Like you could, if you were going to be that much of a stickler for authenticity, it, you become the kind of player that's like, well, in this part of the Forgotten Realms, are there any dwarves? Like, will I be able to get a smith in a village this size? Um, mm. What what kind of hats do these like bandits wear, and is that authentic? Because the last, you know, that you need to chill out about all of that. Like all of it's an imagined yeah. world that is not completely defined. You can make stuff up, and I'd, I'd hope that the scope. It sounds like the scope in this game for players to make a bit of stuff up as well, if it's not important to the story. So a lot of that background and verisimilitude can also come in, just players narrating. What they're doing, what you know, what noodle dish, what kind of noodles they have, they can make that. Right. And if it's not plot important, that can be their kind of thing that they mm. bring to the table, rather than relying on the, you know, because you want to avoid a GM as final arbiter of the world um, all the time. Anyway, the plot bit, right. the important bit is, but everything else that happens around it, players can players can crack on and, and do stuff with that as well. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's um, there's like other things we could draw on to play a blade game, like Hill Street Blades, for example, or you know, other cut procedurals or. Things in with the relationships and investigators stuff. Obviously, it's not going to be 
do Android dream of electric sheep in terms of thing, but just from the stylings that we're talking about there in terms of adding details of what it's like to be Blade Runners you know, or a cop, basically. Yeah, well, I think there's probably. I think there's obviously, as I said, I imagine there's, I imagine there's loads and loads of like Cyberpunk 2020 supplements and Cyberpunk RPGs that fit exactly into it because it was such a, such a great source material to draw on. Or you can just put it in and have a little twist. And, and, and change it slightly to, to do it. And there's lots of things about... I, I think often in Cyberpunk, there's quite a limited range of missions often that you do. There's, there's quite a lot of quite clear plots that you tend to be involved when you're in, a, in when you're a Cyberpunk game. Almost whether you're like a dock wagon or a gang or playing the cops or whatever, you always <laughs> tend to do the same things, don't you? Which is, normally yeah. involves like, escorting a chip across the city, so whatever. So I think there's, there's a whole body of like Cyberpunk source material that I'm sure you'll be able to just use in Blade Runner because it, it's while Blade Runner is distinct and original, it's it's fed into so much of the genre since because it was so massive that there'll be His DNA kind of flows through other stuff. Yeah, it? and I'm sh- I'm sure there's there's cyberpunk supplements where there's like androids and like engineered beings and so on. There's there's lots of I mean there's lots of stuff in the nature of humanity and like sort of transhumanist stuff as well. So like Eclipse Phase has got lots of things on that about what what it means to be human and, and, and how you define those that'd be interesting so just a wealth of material really out there to use as uh, and, and again you need like yeah. you need one idea to craft an adventure around it you get get one sure. idea and then from that you build the like where you take the chip from to <laughs> who, who the mr johnson is that you like uh, we have to infiltrate a corporate hq again do we? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. what was the, what was the shadow and thing that you always get betrayed as well like mr johnson always no, betrays yeah, you have to. every single yeah. every single publishing adventure i'm exaggerating but a lot of them so a high proportion yeah thinking like netrunner for example there's there's a world book out for that and a role-playing game now and that that's pretty good it's got some elements like um there's biroids in that as they call them the artificial people that are made and it also has clones, so they kind of like separate them into two different things. But between those two camps, you've kind of got replicants. Uh, and they have stuff like a human's first movement, because, you know, all those jobs are getting taken off people because replicants are doing them all, basically, and things like that. And a uh, whole thing about trust and other people and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, there, there's definitely already some, some things out that you can mine, I think, to get more ideas, which is cool. It does sound a little bit daunting in terms of the amount of handbook the handouts even that's the word I was looking for the handouts you have to do to make a scenario it sounds like you're supposed to give red herring so that's one of the I don't know I don't want to call it a red flag but the thing I'm a bit conscious of is that quite often our GM advice certainly for like one shots and con games is don't put red herrings in there or information that's not important uh, like keep it directed so I guess there's perhaps a thought experiment there around what you do running Blade Runner at a convention and like you, do you want as do you want to keep as many red herrings or Unimportant bits of information there that you put on a table, or I mean, we're, we're theorising because we've not seen the game, obviously, but it might need to be a little bit more directed for a one shot with people you don't know, as opposed to a campaign game where I, I have seen players, for example, in investigation games, even with like five or six handouts, like throw their hands up and go, like, oh, I'm not reading all that, or I don't get it, or yeah. you know, can I just make an investigation well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to skip to the end. Uh, yeah. Which we then kind of want to ask them why have you signed up for an investigative game if you don't want to do any investigation? But that, that's a different conversation. I think, yeah, I don't know. I I hope that it's not like red herrings and one of these three statements is true and the other isn't and the others aren't and an encouragement to sort of go off down. The I think I think the like the investigative game that I've played where that I've experienced as a player where we did have the sort of you know red string 
corkboard clues and stuff was a game of um, Dracula dossier. And I think in that, there's not, there aren't really any red herrings. Um, or certainly it didn't feel like we did. It was a, maybe that was down to the GM a bit. Um, we did we did find out stuff that was only sort of tangentially important to the the actual thing we were trying to find out, if that makes sense. But they weren't mm. things that led us. It wasn't something that said, "Oh, we better fly to Italy or whatever." Although I think there is an Italy chapter in <laughs> in the book that we, did, <laughs> that we didn't get to. Um, but yeah, so I think I think it's about having the flexibility in the in the investigation that you might find out things that are. Not not just colour, not just background secrets, but just give a little bit like reinforce of the clues or do it. I know mm. I'm thinking aloud a bit about um, Mike Shea, Sly Flourish's thing about having 10 clues in each session as part of his, his prep. And about those right. clues might just be like in Bloodborne where you find like little things about the setting. So they might just mm. be background details that aren't immediately important, but might be in a few sessions time, but, but they're not. It's not something that leads you to like the other side of the city to do something unrelated. And while you do that, somebody else gets killed or whatever. You know, it, I think there's a way to have lots of information. But, but also, I, I'm saying it like I'm not someone who would have... I, I'm, I'm the GM at a con who has like three handouts. And it's really obvious when you find out something important because like, I've printed it. <laughs> and if I'm just saying what's in the diary, it can't be important. But if it's actually printed out, you know that's the plot and the players. Like, oh, great! Yeah, we're on the right track. Um, so yeah, 28 sounds like sounds like a lot, but it also sounds like that isn't a that isn't a sort of one shot scenario. Um, right, it's, yeah. it's the one thing in the in the start set. I mean, I know the One Rings is like five scenarios, isn't it? So it's probably a that's multi session. Right. Yeah, Chariot of the Gods for aliens is like three sessions. Really, it's not a one shot. Yeah, and you've got and at least you've got an envelope to keep them in, haven't you? Oh well. Hopefully, hopefully, we'll, we'll, players will have an envelope that they can keep them in and keep them organised. I mean, I, I would think they'll hit. Who's saying like if we hit our next stretch goal? It's like, well, you've done, you've done a million pounds already. I'm pretty confident <laughs> in the next like three weeks that you'll do another whatever ten grand or something. Yeah, will you get? Yeah, you've you've beaten twelve million uh, kroner. Will you get to fourteen million? Probably you will. Won't you? With however many days to that. go. Yeah, seventeen days to go. Probably you will. Won't you? <laughs> definitely well yeah good stuff right nice to have you have you on thanks for coming on guy yeah and And, uh, we'll see we've got more special guests lined up dear listeners so we might get guy on again so do let us know what you think and we will just do what we want anyway so (laughs) but it's it's nice to have the engagement (laughs) it's it's all yeah all feedback yeah (laughs) all feedback welcome Uh, thanks to all patrons who support us and throw a few shekels in the pot and even if you just share the podcast or tell the people about it, all that helps. So uh, see you on the flip side, dear listeners. Until next time.